A Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Nat Kringudis. And I'm Cecilia Ramsdale. Welcome to The Wellness Collective, a podcast where we invite you to be part of our wellness community to share, learn and live better. Welcome to this episode of The Wellness Collective. Hello, Natalie Kringudis. Cecilia Ramsdale, how are you on this fun morning? I am excellent and thank you for asking. So we've we've talked about having cancer in the Wellness Collective before. Mm-hmm. That's something that's come up. But today, uh, our guest is going to talk about having cancer and treating cancer, but coming at it from a different perspective. It's kind of, it got me thinking. So my name is Thomas Inkladon. I'm the Chief Scientific Officer at Cosenta Wellness and Cancer Treatment Center. Uh, we've been in business for just about 30 years. Uh, we originally started out as human performance specialists, and I was just a uh, born crazy strong. I could deadlift cars when I was a little boy. And then um, my coaches that were training me told me, you better get educated. So against my will, they made me go to school. And so today I have 23 years of college education and five degrees. I've got all kinds of very unique discoveries. Um, I figured out how to make uh, cancer patients gain muscle and you know do a better job fighting the cancer in their body. I've uh, along the way, I've set world records in five sports. So I've run with airplanes. I've deadlifted bigger trucks <laughs> since um, <laughs> as an adult versus a little boy. And I've had uh, the really good fortune of studying under some of the brightest minds in the world in the exercise physiology arena. Some of the pioneering research I was involved in, we were the first group to look at how to take average women and make them stronger than men. And uh, since you're both ladies, you may uh, find this um Interesting that in the 80s, and this is the United States I'm talking about, so I can't comment about social challenges in the rest of the world, but in the United States in the 1980s, women were told they're not allowed to sweat. So really? as, ridiculous as, as ridiculous as that sounds today, that, that was serious like back then. Like it was, yeah. people actually believe this stuff, you know. Did Jane Fonda turn that around a little <laughs> bit though, single-handedly? Yes, she did. In the 70s is when you started seeing like a lot of the aerobics movements come along. But you got to remember that was still kind of cultish. So even though it was 10 years later, it was kind of like, um, you know, wasn't brought, it wasn't embraced at the level, you know, things are embraced today. And so uh, if you might imagine now, um, our research group was paid quite a bit of money by the United States Army to figure out how to take average women and make them stronger than average men. And so at the time, we were told that's impossible. There's no way a woman can be stronger than a man, you know. We are weapons. Well, I said, how would you know? No one tried this before. Like, how do you have an answer without even studying it, you know? And so... Lo and behold, six months later, all the women were stronger than all the men in the research project we were doing. And then, of course, afterwards, the people that called us quacks and idiots at the beginning, now they say, oh, you guys are so smart. How did you know? <laughs> and I was like, well, we just weren't afraid to think. You know, we weren't afraid to try. You know, and how did you make the women stronger than the men? What, what, did, what was the process? Well, so we had to train these women in a field condition. So imagine if you were out, you know, somewhere, so no gym, no fancy equipment, things like that. And so we had to figure out how to take objects around the environment and use them, you know, to help people get stronger. Uh, We did have some women come into the gym for formal training. So they were doing things like squats and presses overhead and bench presses and deadlifts and movements like that. But the challenge was that um, 
there were these uh, 100-pound boxes that were bulky, and so most people had difficulty lifting them at the start of the study. By the end of the study, we had, uh, you know, some of the women lifting them for repetitions easily. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was a good accomplishment. But after that study, then we were, um, we were hired to study the effects of strength training on elderly people. So we were able to add muscle on people over 100 years of age. Wow. So it kind of, again, broke another stereotype when we said, hey, we're going to study older people and get them stronger. And everybody goes, oh, old people shouldn't lift weights. They're going to get hurt. And it's like we're not starting out with a full truck on their back. You know, <laughs> We're starting out with light weights and going from there. But again, it was a lot of fear-based thinking. And then, as you might imagine, when we progressed to doing strength training with cancer patients, same type of objections. Oh my God, you'll kill them because you're you're stress, you know stressing out their system. And lo and behold, what we found is that um, our subjects were you know basically functioning till the day they passed away. Uh, we had men and women that were still out dancing, making love to their husbands or wives. They're going food shopping, doing all the stuff we kind of all do, but we don't think about like what a, a luxury it is sometimes. But unfortunately, at the end of the study, the difference in mortality rates wasn't different between the exercise group and the non-exercise group. So as you might, it appears on paper that whether you lift weights or not, everybody dies at the same time. And so the position was that there was no effects of exercise. But what was ignored was the quality of life. Yeah. And even today, there's a lot of research studies that show no benefits of exercise. But what you got to keep in mind is that the people doing the studies don't know how to exercise. So you can't ask someone with no experience how to do something the right way. It just doesn't work. And unfortunately, you know, sometimes people are attached to big uh, research centers. So they get funding but they don't know what they're doing. They just happen to be at the right place at the right time when the funding came in. So today, we've, we've taken this research from my background and some of the other guys that work here, and we've used that to help people that are in wheelchairs walking in under 90 minutes. We just had a case this week. Family went to Mexico and then decided to drive here from Mexico because they weren't happy with the results we were getting at a treatment center. And the daughter came in a wheelchair, and I said, we're going to have a walking today. That's the goal that we have. We don't lower our standards because someone is sick or suffering. We just try harder to bring them up to level of our expectations. And it works quite well. With regard to quality of life and somebody who has a diagnosis and a prognosis, it's impossible to measure because you don't know what how else it could have been. It's not like you can split mm. yourself in two and then... Sliding door. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, I mean, logic would tell anyone when you are active, when you are able to, and I would imagine, and I'd love to learn a little bit more about, is it just about exercise or does nutrition play a role with that? Because I know that that's a big part of building muscle is how you recover and, and how your body does that and what your cells are doing. I can't, you know, there's so many benefits of movement outside of even just building muscle or looking after your bones. It's the um, endorphins and the mm. chemicals and the hormones that are released. So, you know, logic would tell you that life is better. We all know this when we're <laughs> when moving. moving. Yeah. So um, you said something very insightful there that, uh, and this is um, a point I just want to emphasize that you made is that, um, so no doctor in the world today that's in standard of care medicine knows what happens to people that don't do standard of care medicine, right? So they're saying, don't do this because it won't work. And you'd say, well, you've never studied it. 
How is that scientific to make a comment about something you have no experience on when a definition of science is direct observation, right? So we have like, um, you know, uh, what I see in the United States and there's a trend I see now in other countries around the world is we tell everybody, see your doctor first before you exercise or start a new diet. And then the problem is the doctors don't know anything about exercise and nutrition. So we're driving everyone because of fear of liability. Like we don't want to get sued. So, hey, see your doctor first. But your doctor never took exercise and nutrition courses in med school. (laughs) So it creates this sort of weird circular logic that we're driving people to see the wrong people. That's amazing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I've never thought of that before, but that's exactly right. Mm. Um, Can we specifically talk about your work with cancer patients. Specifically, you have done some really interesting work with people who are suffering from cancer to do with their mental state. Yeah. So, you know, um, years ago, it started with, um, I would get interviewed and people would say, you know, why do you think, uh, you know, basically worldwide, one third of cancer patients die. And so as I was looking at data from around the world, not just the United States, one of the things that was was showing up over and over again is uh, people getting the wrong treatments. And they can get the wrong treatments from the drugs themselves were mislabeled. So it wasn't intentional on the part of the professionals. But then you also have, well, you know, before you walk into a center, they already have the treatment plan. They don't know your name, but somehow they know what's right for you. Mm. That's illogical, right? That doesn't fit where science tells us, well, unique and different. So how could what works for me possibly work Mm. for you when we don't know details about you yet? So I used to say, you know, people were dying because they're getting the wrong treatment. But then as we started, you know, work with more and more people, two things started appearing. Um, one is that uh, people have a lot of behavioral issues that interfere, uh, particularly men. Women tend to respond better, at least in my experience, than men when it's the same cancer. Number one reason, they listen to directions better. <laughs> you know, it, Thank you for saying just, that. Yeah, just, well, just have and see it over and over again. You know, a guy comes in and, you know, real, you may not realize this, but I am a guy. So I'm like talking <laughs> about myself, right? So, <laughs> so these guys come in and you say, okay, they go, I want to live. Tell me what to do. And you tell them what to do. And then the next day you go, did you do what I told you yesterday? They go, no. <laughs> like, wait a minute. I thought you said you want to live, right? So we have uh, a lot of challenge there. And I don't know exactly why. Like, it's not as hard as sometimes people make it. But one of the things I, I've come to realize with men is that um, when when a woman has cancer and is dealing with it, she's more open to sharing her story with the rest of the world and leveraging other people to um, like support her. Whereas men, or, or say a guy has cancer, he doesn't want anyone to know because it's almost like admitting he's weak. The way I look at it is like, if you fell and hurt your knee, that doesn't make, mean you're a bad person. You know what I mean? If you got sick, you may not have had any role in that disease. You know, if chemicals in the environment damage our DNA, I don't know how you could have prevented that if you couldn't have seen it, you know, in the environment. What we try to do is help people before they get here, look at certain things that could make a big impact. One is, it starts off with, uh, they need a purpose in life. You know, anyone diagnosed with cancer, it's an incredibly overwhelming experience or journey or whatever term you want to use. And what's really sad sometimes is, you know, um, many people are all alone. So imagine um, a husband or wife 
uh, going to their partner and they say, I have cancer and I want to try this procedure. It doesn't matter what it is. And many times a partner will say, no, I don't want you to do it. So now not only does that person with the disease have to deal with the burden of that disease, but they have to also deal with the fact that their loved one is not supporting their decision making. Mm. And, and it, it makes sense to a degree, like if you have someone you love, you don't want to see them do anything that may harm themselves. But when you're talking about something like cancer, there's no right or wrong decision because you don't know the answer in advance. And so what you want to do is take action quickly and then have time to, to, to decide what to do when it doesn't work. So uh, we focus a lot at the beginning of talking to people to see where their head's at. So imagine, I want you to listen how this sounds. If you said to me, hey, do you want to live? And I said, yes. And then afterwards I go, but I won't do this and I won't do this and I won't do this and I won't do this. I've now limited what tools you could offer me to live. And that's something that a lot of people um, sometimes don't realize just their state of mind and their way to limit their opportunities for success by simply saying, I won't do all these things. But if our health was a business, we would look at it from a more strategical position and we would say something like, um, okay, what's the goal here? And the goal would be something like to live. And then after that, you might say, okay, if the goal is to live, what is uh, next important? You might say, you know, no side effects or, you know, something that I can afford, like the more practical matters. But what, what I see happening a lot of times is people read so much misinformation on the internet that they have all these fears in their head. And so now here's a flawed logic. They're worried about a side effect so they don't do something that could save their life. Well, when you're dead, then what do you care about side effects at that point? There's nothing to deal with, right? Yeah, that's a very and big so, side effect, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And, and so what, what happens sometimes is there's uh, poor choices made because there's a lack of logic because they're not thinking strategically, they're thinking emotionally. Mm, I think that's really important. We do need to take a quick break, but we will be back straight after this. We are here talking with Dr. Tom Incladon and we've kind of gone down the rabbit hole of cancer and cancer treatment. But it's it's yeah. a different approach though. Like, you know, I think everyone knows somebody who has had cancer and like we were talking before, the first thing is you just freeze. Well, what I particularly loved and resonated with what you said was it is sold it's sold to all of us. It really is and I get this too, time and time again, as an individualized approach. Mm. But there's nothing individual necessarily about it. And I you know, like you said, we can already have the the schedule of what a treatment plan looks like well before you've even met with your doctor. And, you know, how do we get people to be able to have the confidence to advocate for what is best for them. It's a hard time to do that. There's, like you said, we're making decisions based on our emotions, not logically what is necessarily going to be best or worried about the consequences. So, you know, in your experience, how do you get around this? Well, so first uh, we have like um, some free eBooks for people that they can download online just to help them get awareness. You know, it's, um, what I kind of have seen is that uh, when someone gets diagnosed, there's usually like a little bit of shock and disbelief and they're overwhelmed. Like 
usually what I hear is I was healthy my whole life and then I had stage four cancer. Right away, we already know they're not really, that's not how it goes. It takes decades for cancer to develop most of the time. It doesn't usually happen overnight. Um, and so then the next thing they'll usually do is then put in, let's say, you know, whatever the cancer is and then the word treatment to see what's out there. And so what people are forgetting is that what determines the information they see is these artificial intelligence platforms that are impacted by revenue and rankings, right? So you go on the internet, you go into Google or Bing or some other search engine, you're not getting information from an optimal biology perspective. You're getting information based on who's got better search engine algorithms, mm. who's doing their pay-per-click campaigns correctly, like all these other marketing metrics. And so right at the very beginning, the average person is succumbing to marketing they're never going to get the right answer that way because that's based on someone else making money. It's not based on what's best for you and your unique physiology or biochemistry. Yeah, that's amazing. So part of the initial you know, conversations we have is help people get a better awareness of when you find information, what is it that's really getting to you? It's not what you think it is. It's what's been biased you know, to get to you. Do you think too the way that we think about cancer has to change? I mean, we we did a podcast earlier in our series with a friend of mine who has uh, breast cancer for the third time and um, it's metastasized, that's how you say it, isn't Mm -hmm. it, into her bones. So essentially the doctors have said, we're not exactly sure what sort of treatment we can give to you. This is going to be the way your life proceeds from now on. But instead of treating you as a cancer patient, we're just going to treat you like you have a chronic illness. And to me, when she said that to me, I was like, that that's like a, a light bulb has gone on because I've never, ever thought of cancer as that. It's always like, we've got to cure it. We've got to cure it. But potentially the way our mindset is set towards treating the disease changes everything. Well, so mindset is very important, but I'll tell you that um, there's not a clear defining line between mind, body and spirit, right? It's still one human being. And um, what I, I think the danger sometimes is embracing something without maybe understanding if it's the best fit um, for that individual. So for example, we know some people do have organisms in their body that may have caused their cancer. They can try all kinds of drugs to treat the cancer and it won't work. But once you eliminate the organism that was triggering the cancer, suddenly that cancer disappears very rapidly. So in terms of on the medical side, what has to happen is doctors have to pressure a change for education. Education right now around the world is influenced by drug companies. So you have very bright people. These are young people going to school and they're going to learn drugs and surgery. Those are the only weapons. They're not learning exercise, they're not learning nutrition, they're not learning about the microbiome at the level that it should be implemented. And then uh, most of the, you know, like the FDA in the US and the equivalent in countries around the world, they're, they're owned by drug companies. So the, the financial muscle drug companies have is so vast that allows key players from the drug industry to go to work at, he's at the FDA and other type organizations and influence the decision-making and their policy. Um, it it would, can be considered a violation of fiduciary responsibility. Let's say the CEO from Coca-Cola going to Pepsi. You don't take trade secrets from one company and bring them to the competitor. Uh, but no one really polices that in terms of drug company execs going into government agencies that are overseeing the drug companies. That's a tremendous conflict of interest. No one really addresses those issues. So as a result, things that should be caught are never triggered or caught. 
to kind of get through the system. And to put some things in perspective, at 100 million US dollars per year, whether you're an individual or person, you can influence the economy of any country in the world. Drug companies just in cancer drugs alone collectively do $158 billion a year. They're millions of times above the financial muscle needed to influence decision-making and public policy in every country in the world. So it's going to take um, disruption, not just a change in a way of thinking, but it's got to be an explosion that's so serious that its forces change. Otherwise, we'll be trapped in a circular logic that will never escape. Um, in 2012, countries around the world started publishing in key medical journals that the financial model with healthcare has to change because there's not really good details attached to outcomes. The, the, the details are attached to making more revenue and not actually getting people healthier. It's such a... <laughs> Such that, a big we've opened the rabbit can hole. Of worms. Right? We've gone down the rabbit hole. Can <laughs> yeah. of worms, rabbit. We've opened the rabbit worms. And the rabbit and the worms. <laughs> um, I know we are running out of time, but I just want to ask the question in your experience over the last 30 years or so, have you seen this landscape change? And, and then speak to the what's in it for the future. Like, where are we headed with this, do you think? Well, so. Um I would say uh, globally, the landscape has not changed very much. It's just become, you know, people are further entrenched in these thoughts like, hey, so there's a, a study done. The purpose of the study is to generate more revenue for the company funding the study. Most people don't see that. So they get caught up in this, well, I got this cancer that can't be cured. So I want to get in a new study to try this new drug that's unproven. It's flawed logic. That's not what you want to do. That's just a guaranteed way to make sure you die. That's not the way to make sure you live. If uh, for people that want to live, they have to be able to get competent care by someone that understands multiple aspects or vectors that influence cancer. And movement is certainly one of them uh, because there's a global uh, lack of awareness between the impact of lack of use of the human body and the disease process. Anytime someone has a diagnosis, everything that happens to them is labeled as part of the disease and which totally ignores the fact that they're not moving. So an example, an elite athlete that gets injured in three days, one leg looks dramatically different than the other. And yet despite that, that awareness in sports, no one has made that connection to disease. They treat disease like everything that happens is all the disease and forgetting that they've been laying in a bed and not moving. That's why they're atrophying. Yeah. In the case of cancer, what happens is the cancer cells will have such higher metabolic rates, they're eating away everything else. By strength training and doing things for the muscle, you could actually make the healthy cells more active than the cancer cells. Yet that's ignored. I've never seen a cancer center, key treatment center outside of our place that has a full-time strength coach for their cancer patients. Mm. Um, most people say that I never heard of that. So yes or no question, because we do have to go. I think we've answered this, but I'm going <laughs> to ask you anyway. Exercising in can with cancer is safe. Yes. <laughs> so if this is Within you and this is resonating with you, obviously you've got some resources where people can go and check this out. So do you want to just quickly let people know where they can find you? Sure, they can go to causenta.com. That's C-A-U-S-E-N-T-A. We have a form on the website. They can fill it out and they can have someone they can talk to for free. 
and there's all kinds of free downloads and all kinds of eBooks, and we have all kinds of cool videos and exercise programs and diets and stuff like that. Amazing. Well, it thank amazing, you. Isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so great. It just made you feel like you're still part of the world. Yes. You're not just sitting in a bed. Definitely. Mm. Thank you so much, Dr. Tom, for joining us today. This has been excellent, and we can't wait for our listeners to be able to listen to this and experience all of your knowledge. So thank you. Thank you, ladies, and make sure you stop by next time you're in Arizona. I will. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I love that we talk to people sometimes and I go, I had never thought about that before. And I think, do I just not think very much? I don't know. No, I just love it when logic prevails. I'm such a logical person. Yeah. Anyone who knows me, I'm always going, well, that's not logical. Mm. But truly, he's not saying you shouldn't have treatment. He's saying, how about we just make it an individualised approach, like a proper individualised approach. But every single other being on the planet benefits from exercise at any phase, stage. I know. Or, like, why would we just shut that down? Why, yeah, why just because you're sick and in inverted commas would you stop doing everything that has made you well previously? I guess, you know, you've got of to course. listen to your body as well. If you're yeah, not, yeah. if you can't do it, you can't do it. And that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about slowly building that up. But, you know, it just makes a lot of sense to, to tap into that excellence of movement mm. and all of the different factors. And the other thing I really love and I want to touch on is that there definitely is this shift when it comes yeah. to um, not only how we're approaching this, but also the way we're talking about it as ourselves. People are claiming, and not claiming in a inverted commas way, they're actually taking ownership of their condition and thriving with it. Yep. And it's not about necessarily the cure. It's about how can I live my best life under these circumstances? Absolutely. And I think that that when we can have that shift, that's actually really where the magic happens. And it's also about trusting that you know what's going on in your own body, mm. probably better than every other person well, on the planet. Be- very hard, but I think once you get there, mm. very rewarding. Absolutely. Mm. Hey, um, thank you for joining us for this episode of The Wellness Collective. We love that you have been listening to, uh, we've had plenty of interesting episodes lately. Interesting is my favourite word, I Clearly. might point out, because I just Clearly. come away going, my mind just got blown again. There you go. <laughs> We're backing out and up minds and all sorts of things. <laughs> anyway, um, yes, thank you for joining us today. Please don't forget to rate us, leave a review. We love those and we do read them out from time to time. But we will let everyone get on with their next podcast. Fast forward to the next one. Absolutely. <laughs> it might just flow on if you uh, if you happen to be doing something else. Until next time, we hope this episode has left you feeling a little bit healthier. Happier. And better. Happier.